This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 6, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The institution of slavery marked a horrible chapter in American history, but how it developed deserves its own attention. Rob McDonald is Associate Professor of History at the United States Military Academy and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week during Cato University. In one of your previous talks at, at Cato University, you talked about uh, the emergence of slavery as both a legal and cultural institution in Virginia and how it it's sort of a chicken and egg problem historically of what comes first, slavery or racism. And the answer, if I understand you correctly, is that it's not clearly racism. I think that's true. I, you know, I think a lot of people um, from our modern day perspective, they they look back in the past and they tell themselves a story that the farther you get back, um, the farther you go back, the more racist it gets. And it, it seems as if the evidence suggests otherwise, that uh, in Virginia, especially in the, the early, rough, kind of pioneer environment of the 1600s, um, there was a fair amount of workaday equality um, and, and good race relations between people who came from Europe and people who came from Africa. Um, there's evidence of a good deal of interracial marriage. Um, there, there were people brought here as slaves uh, who were able to buy their freedom and own their own land, uh, seemed to get along well with their white neighbors, um, were members of the militia or parish vestries. Um, had lawsuits against white neighbors over property line disputes and white judges and white juries would rule in their favor. Um, it, it seems as if the racism really came after slavery was legalized and, and, and instituted and formalized in, in the way that it was set up and arranged. What legal institutions existed uh, in the 1600s that would, would lead one to believe that an indentured servant uh, would have a shot at uh, a good life. So in addition to slavery, Virginia from the very start had indentured servitude as a form of labor. And while the first slaves arrived in Virginia in, in 1619, really um, for the first several decades of Virginia history, it was indentured servitude that was a preferred form of labor. So slavery was pretty rare in the 1620s, 1630s, 1640s. Um, indentured servitude was a pretty common practice. It was, you know, a legal arrangement, a contractual arrangement. People who had big farms in Virginia would work through agents in in, in England, London, and other cities, where uh, those agents would make deals with with people. Most of whom were in pretty desperate, dire straits. They they saw going to Virginia, risking their lives, crossing the ocean. Um, is the best of their available opportunities. And in exchange for that ocean passage, they would agree to work for four or five or six or seven years um, for somebody else. And that other person would own their labor. At the end of, of their term of indenture, uh, typically the, the planters built into the contract um, a sweetener. They would receive um, 50 acres of land or 75 acres of land. And the Virginia House of Burgesses, the Virginia colonial government, subsidized um, the tr that that part of the contract by uh, giving through the headright system 50 acres of land to planters who sponsored um, an indentured servant's voyage across the ocean. I'm thinking about this in terms of inputs right. on a farm. Right. And indentured servitude seems to be a pretty 
a pretty good deal. You have years of, of labor in exchange for something that is not that costly, uh, a passage across the ocean. But at some point, as, as you've explained before, that system sort of broke down just based upon uh, demographics and, and law. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a it's a good deal. It seems in general for the planters, um, it's it's a bad deal for the indentured servants, um, at least in general, because early on in Virginia, life expectancy was very short. There were a lot of indentured servants who never survived their terms of indenture, um, and so maybe they were supposed to work for six for six or seven years. They might die after five. And uh, keep in mind, the contract specified that at the end of their term of indenture, they would get 50 acres. Well, the planter would get to keep that land. However, once they started to live longer, once Virginia got a little bit more stable, once Virginia got a little bit more, more settled, once people became better acclimated to the climate and the disease environment, um, once they were better fed, people began to survive their terms of indenture. And as a result of that, they got their own land. Um, and they could start competing economically with the planters. They could grow their own tobacco, you know, which was the cash crop of choice. And uh, as more and more acreage went under cultivation, um, as more and more tobacco hit the market, demand was really not keeping up with the supply. And so the prices began to fall. And um, it, it became pretty clear to a lot of the planters um, the grandees, you know, of the Tidewater who had the big estates and the big homes and the big labor forces that um, something was going to have to change or they were going to have to grow even more tobacco to try to maintain the same level of income that they had previously enjoyed. So this essentially, if I understand you correctly, tilted the balance uh, in terms of preferences among landowners toward slaves yes. over indentured servants. Why was that not already the case? Well, uh, I, I think in part because of uh, just sort of the economics of, of the situation. With uh, indentured servants, you were essentially paying a, a smaller amount of money um, for what would presumably be a smaller amount of labor. You'd be buying someone's labor for five or six or seven years. Um, with slavery, you were paying more money for what presumably would be a greater amount of labor. You were buying someone's labor for life and you were buying the labor of, of their descendants for life. Um, it, it, it's, it's risky if for both people of European and African ancestry, death rates are high. Um, but as people begin to live longer, it seems like it's a, a more economically wise sort of decision. So slavery becomes a lot more popular. What follows? Well, slavery kind of gradually becomes uh, more popular. Indentured servitude is probably still dominant into the 1660s and 1670s. But you begin to see um, some legal changes, some uh, laws uh, affecting the status of indentured servants, as well as laws affecting the status of uh, African-American or African slaves. Uh, you know, we know that, as we've already mentioned, there there were some Africans who enjoyed a reasonably high degree of status in Virginia in the 1600s. You know, people whose names we know, um, Anthony Johnston, Tony Longo, you know, people who were born in Africa, brought to America um, as slaves, who were able in various ways to win their freedom or purchase their freedom. And not only that, they were able to purchase their own ground, their own land. Um, some went on to purchase uh, white and indentured servants' labor. Some went on to purchase African slaves. Um, you know, they, they were important members of, of their community. 
um, and and you know did uh, valuable things, their status was really quite high. But things began to change um, for black people when you start to see um, people realize that indentured servitude is uh, creating a problem as well as solving one. It's solving a problem in terms of finding labor, but it's creating a problem in that all of those labors now are going on to become economic competitors. And uh, really, it's in 1676, after Bacon's Rebellion, that the government starts to take some really decisive moves to end indentured servitude and institute slavery as a, a permanent race-based status. So Bacon's Rebellion was uh, an incident in which Nathaniel Bacon, uh, himself a member of the, the gentry, but on the outs with the, the people in power, Governor William Barclay um, and his council, um, Nathaniel Bacon became the leader of a group of mostly former indentured servants who lived mostly in the, the what was then the west of Virginia. Um, these people wanted more land so that they could grow more tobacco, um, so that they could be more profitable. Um, but that required uh, having the assistance of the government to uh, battle Indians who, for obvious reasons, didn't want their territory encroached upon. So Nathaniel Bacon appealed to the House of Burgesses and in what is maybe the first uh, example of insincere political correctness in American history, the House of Burgesses said essentially, no, you know, thou mustn't um, take, take the, the native lands of the Indian people. Um, we need to respect our treaties with them. We need to respect their rights. Um, of course, the members of the House of Burgess, Burgesses had no respect for Indians and their rights and their land when it was, you know, land that they were taking for their own personal benefit. Um, but they don't want the former indentured servants to get this land because they don't want them to, to cultivate it, to grow more tobacco. They don't want to continue to glut the tobacco mar market. They don't want these people competing with them. And Nathaniel Bacon and the, the, the former indentured servants, they seem to know this. Um, they first attack uh, Native American tribes, but then they, they, they turn their sights on Jamestown. They attack Jamestown. They burn down um, most of the buildings there. Uh, it takes Governor Barkley some time to sort of marshal his men and, 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 and uh, get his forces um, together. Meanwhile, Nathaniel Bacon, he retreats um, across the James River. He heads into Surrey County. There's a house there in Surrey County that people now know as Bacon's Castle. He um, sort of fortifies himself in there. He ends up dying of disease. But um, it's really after Bacon's Rebellion that you begin to see some real changes. Um, Virginia passes a series of laws that, um, among other things, um, bring an end to the headright system. So no longer will indentured servitude receive that government subsidy. Um, in addition, they make more permanent the status of African or African-American slaves. Um, if you're enslaved, you're enslaved for life. Uh, you no longer have the legal ability to buy your own freedom. You no longer, if you are a slave owner, have the legal ability to, to manumit, to free um, your own slave. And if you are already um, a free African or free African-American living in Virginia, like Tony Longo, like Anthony Johnston, um, you lose some important um, rights and uh, some important abilities. No longer can you own a gun, for example. Um, no longer can you uh, enter into legally binding contracts. I, I think, you know, a lot of people won't immediately recognize just how devastating that is to, to be incapable of entering into a legally binding contract. Uh, you can't 
buy or purchase land. Um, you can't make any investments of significance. You can't make any investments of significance. And, and, you, and you can't have the recourse of the law if somebody tries to take advantage of you, if somebody doesn't uh, uphold their contractual bargain. Um, it it uh, becomes really difficult for people of African descent under such circumstances to survive. And, you know, the, the sad thing is we don't have records of how they, how they handled this problem because without contracts, without the legal records that, that their previous rights made possible, um, they really just kind of, you know, disappear um, into the mists as far as history is concerned. Um, and what happens to the Longos? What happens to the Johnsons? What happens to the other um, African Americans who lived on Virginia's eastern shore and other parts of Virginia where they enjoyed some freedom and, and some status? Um, we really don't know. Slavery is never a pleasant institution. It's an awful, horrible institution. Uh, but to deny uh, slaves even the opportunity to escape that institution, uh, you've made it I, I, that much worse. Absolutely. And so by the time you entered in the, in the 1700s and uh, 1800s, what has, what has developed? Well, you know, one of the big changes, uh, and this brings us around to the beginning of our conversation, one of the big changes is that in the early days, in the 1620s, uh, 1630s, 1640s, the big divide in Virginia wasn't so much between black and white. It was between free and unfree. Um, you, you could be uh, a, a white freeman or a black freeman, or you could be a white indentured servant and you don't own your own labor, or you could be a black slave and legally you don't own your own labor. Um, that's the divide. You know, the people who were in the houses and the people who are out working in the fields, um, that changes at the end of the 17th century when Virginia passes these laws. Um, being somebody who lacks freedom, um, being someone who doesn't even have a legally recognized property right in their own body, in their own life, um, that becomes associated with uh, having dark colored skin and, and African uh, heritage. Uh, suddenly we've racialized the status of free freedom. Rob McDonald is an associate professor of history at the United States Military Academy and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can watch several videos featuring Professor McDonald at our website, cato.org.